Welcome, I'm Ruth Ferenga, founder of Conscious Leaders. This podcast aims to change the world of work one honest conversation at a time. And I hope you enjoy these conversations with proven people leaders running highly successful businesses. Now, if you're interested in developing your leadership skills further, I've digested the top traits and behaviors of the best people leaders I can find into a book. It was recently a finalist in the Business Book Awards and it's called Next Level Leadership, Nine Lessons from Conscious Leaders. To order your copy, visit consciousleaders.org.uk forward slash book. And you can also subscribe to my bi-weekly newsletter where I share free content, including practical tools to help leaders move from good to great. This month, I'm introducing Chris Fippin. He's founder of Hatless Studios and one of the most philosophical guests I have met, but still practical. I started by asking him just how he got to where he is now. Career-wise, for the last five years, I've been running a software development company, um, which I started while I was studying. Uh, that basically came out of the fact that me and a couple of friends were bored students at the uni, feeling that we weren't really getting our money's worth, but also that what we were learning wasn't really in line with what industry was doing. And we wanted to get a little bit ahead of the game. So set up just kind of building tiny, small, irrelevant apps on our own initially, and then had some companies approach us and say, we've got a small bit of money, can you give us a hand with this? And we charged them way not enough. Um, and over the years that's kind of matured. And by the time I graduated, it was a full-timeable thing. And you know, here we are today, but I'm just transitioning out of that, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Before and, that- And wait, before we mm. do Hatless at a service. So this is mm. not just you just making apps, but it's hiring students yeah. to supporting companies with- Yeah, so what we started as students with this kind of mentality of, we're youngsters, we're still figuring it out, but we think we can do some good with that. And we kept that ethos going. So even after I graduated and we hired a couple of full-time people as well, the core of the business has remained around that kind of student orientation, um, helping them develop quickly and figure out figure, figure out what they're about, basically. Um, I think a big part of education that's been missing for a really long time is about that kind of um, self-exploration and self-actualization, figuring out what are you about, what are your, you know, your ethical views on the world, what is it you want to be doing with life, what do you think you're here to do um, on a kind of a wider level, I guess. Mm. So, yeah. Um, before Hatless, I was kind of, we were talking just before, it, it's, it's kind of an odd one because I don't think anything I was doing before would really have given the hint that I'd end up here. Um, prior to starting the company, I just kind of sat in my room and played video games most of the time. That was most of my childhood up until I was about 18 and I started socializing. And I, re I remember this distinct point when I was about 16, when a friend of mine introduced me to this uh, this psychometric framework, which everybody's heard of now, called the Myers-Briggs uh, type indicator. And suddenly it became like, from from the mentality I had before, which was people exist and I can kind of put up with them and they're a bit uninteresting too. Oh, well, there's ways of understanding them, actually. It's like I'd been given a framework to loosely understand how people work. Now, I, I now have my own criticisms of Myers-Briggs and how it works and it has its limitations and whatnot, but it's still a useful model from my perspective. And I think in many ways this has shaped my attitudes towards people, but I got really interested not in how the brain functions, but how the brain dysfunctions. So I spent a lot of time kind of doing research on kind of clinical psychology and abnormal psychology. So. And again, this has definitely shaped my, my attitudes and the way I am. It's, it made me a little more comfortable with the, the kind of darker, more melancholic side of people. Well, let's take a little bit of a, let's move this into your leadership. Um, because, you know, and I hope this doesn't sound in any way patronising, but you're a young person. Sure. You've 
built a company mm -hmm. and um, you're, you're clearly extremely passionate about people. And so I'm wondering if you were to give a high level of your like leadership philosophy, what would it be? My attitude has always been very individual centric, but also appreciating that those people exist within an environment. I don't think you can shape culture directly. What you can do is shape the environment. Culture is like an emergent phenomenon. But you can shape people slightly more directly. You can give them breadcrumbs if you really pay attention to people. And um, I don't mean pay attention like analyze their every move. I mean, pay them the attention that they need. Um, have the, the kind of rich, difficult conversations with them. What are they trying to get out of life? What are, what, what, what are the stories that they tell themselves about the world and about how they interact with it? Because um, I think, especially given a lot of the work I do is with young people, they haven't had any of that kind of mentorship. I, I often say I, I, I find myself playing a young village elder, um, not because I should be, but because someone's got to. Building an environment where people feel genuinely comfortable in coming to you rather than you having to go to them is now, you have to do both. You have to be proactive about it. I think if you're going to be any kind of um, any kind of people person in an organization, especially if you're trying to be a strong node uh, and, and you're trying to pull people along with you. So if you're, if, if you're in a leadership position, ultimately, your goal is to bring people along for the ride. Um, and um, so, so you've got to build that system where people can come to you and they feel genuinely safe in doing so. And a lot of that, I think, just comes down to authenticity. I'm very much a heart, on, heart is very much on my sleeve kind of guy. Most people know most things about me. And I think people trust authentic people more. Um, I think if people know that I am someone who struggles, but gets through it and I have ways of doing that, and that even when that's the case, I'm there for them, mm. That's, I think, a really powerful thing. I think it also, as much as we don't talk about it very much, power is a thing, it does exist. I think we're almost afraid to claim power. There's something you talked about, about being authentic as a leader and able, what you just said that was really interesting, able to connect to, my words, not yours, your own suffering, mm -hmm. experience your own suffering, move through it, share some of it, share how you got there, and know that you can do this and hold someone else's suffering at the yeah. same time. I think we're almost afraid to claim power because, well, there's a couple of things. One is there's a social stigma to it. But the second is, well, if I claim power now, then I've got to uphold the power. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pressure. Oh my gosh. And so we find creative ways of shirking it in kind of moralizable fashions. I don't think there's actually- Like what? Like how? Well. I get the sense that culturally today, the, the concept of, oh, he couldn't hurt a fly is seen as virtuous. Mm -hmm. It's good, you know, he, he's harmless, that's good. I don't see that as a good thing. I, I like the people that I'm around to be capable who are, uh, to, to be people who are capable of doing hard, dangerous things and choose not to, or choose to only use it when it's absolutely necessary and right to do so. For me, the strength thing is super important. The powerful thing is super important. People who can own their suffering, wear it on their sleeve and say, here are my faults and my foibles. Here are the things that make me hurt. 
You can know all of that, because even when you know that I have those problems, you can't do anything to hurt me. It's the ultimate show of personal strength. And I think people believe in strong leaders. I've always said the only prerequisite to leadership is good pain tolerance. Because it doesn't matter what you do, if you're in a leadership position, by definition, you're pushing the envelope. You are, you are the avant-garde. You are the, the object that the wind will hit first. And there's no way to do that without getting kind of bustled around a little bit. And you have to kind of grit and bear it. Mm. And so the suffering is part of the journey. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Yeah. So, so a lot of my kind of ethos comes from the, the kind of stoic literature. And one of the big sentences in, in or big ideas in that is the obstacle is the way. If as a leader you're doing stuff and it, you're not getting hurt, are you going in the right direction? Mm. Now, I'm being overly simplistic. There are hopefully times as a leader where everything's plain sailing. Everyone's behind you and things are working. Mm. And you need to relish those moments. And they will pass. <laughs> and they will pass. But that's the thing is, as with all things, this too shall pass. Mm. The, the moment of difficult conversation with your colleague will pass. The, the moment of uh, brilliance within your company will pass. Your suitability for the role that you're in, I think, should pass. I think you should perpetually be trying to grow and move up or, or do things and get close to the place where you're supposed to be. Um, nothing is constant, and I think we need to embrace that. But that involves having that, that strength and that pain tolerance. I don't think happiness, or especially contentment, like a deep-seated belief that you're doing the right thing in life, is just a natural thing that everybody gets by default. I think it's something you have to work at. And I think that we need to kind of shift the frame slightly to viewing happiness as a lifelong pursuit of, of meaning, rather than something that you are entitled to, because I don't think we are, mm. that should be easy, because I don't think it can be. And a lot of this comes down to the idea of shallow versus deep pleasures. Most people are very good at finding quick, simple, shallow pleasures to fill their time and don't have anything that then has lasting meaning. Mm -hmm. And this comes down to like Daniel Kahneman's idea of the, um, there is the experiencing brain and the remembering brain. Shallow pleasures and deep pleasures, well, shallow pleasures feel better to the experiencing brain than deep pleasures do. The remembering mind, which is what we're in most of the time, um, hates shallow pleasures, craves deep pleasures, and we don't feed ourselves them enough. Um, so one, one of the kind of, I suppose in some ways it is a quick trick, because um, it realigns things, is I always think, what favour can I do for future me? What can I do now that future me will look back on and what think? What a question. Yeah. So it's like, what can I do? Like, getting the train here, dedicating a couple of hours to having a conversation. I could have been at home playing video games. <laughs> the experiencing mind wouldn't have had to endure some travel and all of that. This is more meaningful. This is going to touch more people. It's going to have a more serious impact. And I'll go home and think, yeah, I'm glad I did that. We rarely have that forethought in mind in the day, in, in, in the moment. Mm. And it's almost like the shallow pleasures are like, what is it? It's like a mask. It's masking itself as a, as a pleasure. That dopamine, like it, it feels like it's going to become something, and then there's emptiness. Well, and and this is the thing with the whole scrolling thing. You get that small immediate pleasure, and there are people who have been paid 
millions and millions of pounds and you know half of Google's expenditure is on psychologists who this I'm making up the numbers here but the, the, the idea is that um, tremendous amount of money is spent on like how do we get people to want to spend another second on the app because that's one more second where they could see an advert and that's more revenue and so it's these systems not only have they like emerged these cravings for shallow pleasures They've then been reinforced due to the financial incentive by some very, very clever people. And I think it's one of the worst tragedies of leadership on the planet, really, because under the right leadership, those are people. A lot of these people are physicists and mathematicians and doctors who have been pulled away because of the financial incentive from, you know, saving the world or solving renewable energy or solving the meaning crisis for all I care. Like, it, so many things. A lot of big brain power yeah. has gone into this stuff. Mm. So how does this apply to leadership? What do you say? I think leaders, my attitude towards leadership is that if I'm a leader of someone, I have responsibility over them. Um, now there are limitations to that and boundaries to that. But the reason I have that belief is I spent a really long time um, meditating on manipulation as a concept. Leaders have no choice but to manipulate, especially if they're highly empathic and have a lot of social skill. You will pick up things about someone's body language, their behavior. Oh, clearly they must be feeling this right now. If I say these things, they will feel a different way. And that'll be useful for them, me, the company. I'll get my paycheck better. I'll get my bonus because my team will do better. We have no choice but to be manipulative. I, I've, I, I searched for a long time, can I shut this off? Can I, can I find ways of leveling the playing field? And a lot of the ways that you can do that is by um, what's called breaking the frame. I can point out, um, we're having a conversation about this. I feel like I'm getting this read from you, which makes me want to do this and this. Just so you know, please factor that bias in when you're making your decision here. I don't want to influence you. Now you can do that, but it doesn't work all the time and it makes you less effective in some ways. So. As a leader, you end up having to become comfortable with the idea that manipulation is going to happen, and then you have two choices. Well, either manipulation is just a thing, who cares? I'll do whatever's useful for me, and I think that's irresponsible and dangerous and not good. And the only other option that I've found is that you have to take responsibility. If I have the, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, if I have the ability to manipulate, I need to make sure that I'm looking after those people, mm. that the, the manipulations I'm doing Yes, they're for a wider goal, but it's a goal that we're all agreed on. Mm -hmm. And that if sacrifice is happening and duress is happening, which it always will, I'm responsible for making sure that they're okay, that they're doing something that's meaningful for them in the process. It's harder, but that's the only way that I can kind of, I've got a very, very sensitive, that there are two things I'm really sensitive about. One is, one is, um, one is bullshit. I have a really sensitive bullshit radar. Um, and, and the other is this kind of, impingement on other people's liberty and their stories. Mm. I want to make sure that if I'm entwined, I'm entwined in a productive fashion. It sounds like that's down to intention. Like we've got a goal, we've got a business, I need to get you to come along the train in the right way. But I also care about you. I care that your personal goals um, get met to a certain extent alongside the company goals. Yeah. Like I'm doing this, I'm holding both you, I care about you, holding my hands up here you can't see that <laughs> I care about you and I care about the company and I care about me yeah I, mean, I care about and I think that's okay too yeah. caring about you is a, it, it, yeah. is a useful thing yeah um, 
Yeah, and and I think um, it's it's something I realised more recently is that um, you end up in a lot of paradoxes, where it's okay. Well, I'm, or, or at the very least, um, dialectics. Two things held in exact opposition to each other, both of which are correct, both of which are equally valuable. And you, so you're now in this paradoxical situation, and I've realised that there's no way of resolving it. You just have to hold it. The ability okay. to hold, and mm -hmm. this comes back to dealing with uncertainty. A lot of uncertainty is holding tension, being okay with the fact that there is no relief from it, mm. and just appreciating that it's there. Yeah, I mean, this is such a good subject, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's what we were talking about with the dopamine hits. Like, that's the craving is the pleasure stimulus. That's what we want. So that makes us then a little bit allergic to anything that's hard or like... Yeah. But from what you said earlier in the podcast, like, the pain, the ch challenge, that is leadership. So yeah. if you're not experiencing that, you're not really a leader. You're not really leading. You, you've got to become like almost masochistic about it. It's like, I'm doing this. And, and now we're into that emotional versus spiritual um, suffering thing. I know that if I'm struggling here, that I'm doing something worthwhile and enriching, there is nothing that can pull me away from that. There's something, um, there's something anti-fragile about that. A lot of, we talked about like anything in the news cycle, the TikTok cycle, they're fragile ideas. They haven't been tested. They'll fall apart when they get, you know, hit by a small gust. Um, there's something about virtues and having strong ethos where it's like when it's challenged, it's anti-fragile. It gets stronger. It pulls you more when it's challenged. And so I think this is why, I mean, I mentioned like a lot of me doesn't make sense because, you know, my family was like this or uh, I, I was this kind of slightly misanthropic teenager and, and then discovered people later. There, there's something, I remember when I was about 16, something quite rebellious awoke in me. Um, and there was this, um, no one has a clue what they're doing. I don't either, which means I'm on the same playing field. Mm. I'm on a level playing field. Fuck everybody else. Yeah. I'll give this a go. Yeah, and uh, relate this back to, to, to your leadership as well, because uh, you hire people who have never had a job before, some of them, or many of them, most of them. And tell me what it's like when they come in. Oh, gosh. Well, it's different because we hire a bunch of different people, um, a lot of whom are really neurodiverse. And that's... Particularly in relation to this whole, like, you know, no one knows anything. Uh, yeah, I mean, I... The core of our business is bringing in people that have very little experience. They've got a brain on them, though, and they want to work. That they want to, they want to achieve something. The attitudes, right? Yeah, the attitudes super important. Um, now there are sometimes that we get someone with the right attitude, and we do really struggle to train them to do the actual thing. And those are kind of unfortunate scenarios. But I'll always work hard to like, okay, well, let's find you something else because I like you, I care about you, you're my responsibility. Let's figure something out. What's the story here? But a lot of them will then struggle with imposter syndrome. And I think imposter syndrome is more linked to that shame idea from, from earlier. It's not about what you think of yourself. Now, for some people it is, I don't think I'm capable. But a lot of it is actually, I perceive other people as more capable. And if they, mm -hmm. the people I trust to be capable, see me, they'll see a fraud. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, there's a layer of separation. But the easiest way for me to dismantle that um, is to point out to them that nobody else knows what they're doing. The experts that they hold in such high regard are in just... These, in these companies, these CEOs. Yeah, these CEOs. Yeah, 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 look at me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a young CEO. Uh, uh, 
I will fully, I, I am heart on my sleeve. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've got some experience. I've got, I've read a lot of books. Um, I've experienced the world more so than most people. Um, I, I can make a better educated guess. You could come up with a better answer than me. And I trust you to do better than me. If I can tell you the stuff that I've got, we can work together. And I hope that by the end of the, by the time that they graduate and move on, they're better at those things than me. Now, on the development side, they will get much better than me very quickly. I don't have the time to dedicate to that right now. But there are certain clients that I like having who they run successful businesses and you get in a meeting with them and, and they're, I don't know how to say this without sounding really grandiose, that they're mere mortals like the rest of us. Hmm. They would give off typically this vibe of being like, oh yes, I am super big and important and powerful and I've built this multi-million dollar company. And you sit in a room with them or you, you have a coffee with them and it's just like, yeah, I just have, have kind of winging it. Yeah, <laughs> winging it. I like to have barbecues with my friends, just like the rest of you. Yeah. Uh, I, I like seeing the number in my bank account go up, and it, uh, and a lot of my teams see that, and they're like, it shatters their worldview a little bit initially. I I, I um I view it as a process of um uh, managed disillusionment, but I think it's a powerful form of disillusionment because it breaks down a limiting story. The story is there are people out there better than me and there's something unattainable about that. But then I also meet friends of mine who are just having kids for the first time. They're like, I'm not ready. What do I do about this? And I think parenting is like an ultimate form of leadership. You can't escape it really. <laughs> um, and has huge implications. Um, and they'll have kids and I'll be like, okay, well, let's break that illusion slightly. Were your parents ready? You turned out okay. And they're like, yeah, but I was traumatized by this and that. And it's like everybody's parents <laughs> We're traumatized, all traumatized by everybody. <laughs> but yeah. take the stuff you've learned, do a good job with it. Mm. That's as good as anybody can do. I heard someone say something that I can't remember who this was from, but they were like, there's only good one rule with parenting and that's show up. Mm. And I was like, oh, I wonder if the same is true for leadership. Yeah. Like be there. Like, show up. Well, to quote from Jamie Wheel, he says that the three kind of key parts of this are to wake up, show up, and grow up. So it's, you need to wake up and stop paying attention to the stuff around you. So be aware that you can weave your web. Then you need to show up and decide, I'm going to do that, rather than living in a kind of self-inflicted fugue. And then you need to learn and grow into that and weave well and use that. That is the ultimate pursuit of life. Mm. And this book, what reminders of this book? Uh, it's uh, Jamie Wheel's Recapture the Rapture. Mm, sounds um, like a good recommend, top recommendation. You great. mentioned it it's a few great. times. Oh, there's so many good bits in that. Yeah. Um, I love a good book. Anyway, we could go on so long. I'd love to, but you know, bringing this to a, a bit of a close. So, you know, you've achieved a lot, so much at a young age. Um, no doubt, a lot of stressful times, a lot of pain, part of leadership. Mm. How, how do you look after yourself? The truthful answer is that I don't think I'm actually very good at this. Um, and I think the best I can do is be honest about that. And, and um, what, I, what I've learned is that there is such a thing as caring too much. Um, especially when the going gets tough. We, we, um, I, I'm quite open about this now. I, I perhaps shouldn't be, but we're, we're kind of through, the, through, through this now, so it's less of an issue. Like, me and the company spent 22 months straight on the brink of going bust. And now we're through that and we're doing really well, really well. And... But that's got to take its top. Yeah. I mean, if you deal with that for two months, that's like stressful, but you know, you go and take a two week holiday and, and you, you come back and you're fine. 
when it's that chronic and all of that pressure is on you, and at the time I was the only full-timer in the company, and I'm, I, I was still kind of solely responsible for bringing the work in, and I was the most experienced person in the company, and all of the people I'd founded the company with had graduated and moved on. So there's, I think the best I can say really is, make sure that you have people around you that understand you and can support you. I think physical health is really important. I think if you can find ways of getting, you know, a little bit of exercise, 10 minutes of meditation in a day, and then have conversations with, like, do something else with your brain. Mm. Um, have something that's genuinely unrelated to everything you're doing as, I wouldn't even necessarily say a de-stressor, just something to pull do the mind Do you have away. one of those things? Yeah, I go climbing. Um, and, I, and I read a lot. Um, climbing sounds like it must really bring you in the moment. It, yeah, if you're climbing hard, then, then yeah. Um, but like for the last couple of years, basically since we came out of the pandemic, every Saturday for me has been, I go and sit in this one coffee shop called Crank House Coffee. If you're an exeter at any point, go there. I'm not sponsored by them. They're just great. <laughs> and I'll go sit there with a book. And most of the time I never even get to read because someone will sit down at the table They've got this really good like environment for strangers just starting conversation. Serendipity, which yeah. I know is one of the absolutely very key. Absolutely, um, that's another way to look after yourself. Do do spontaneous, serendipitous things. Say yes to life. Um, and um, yeah, Saturdays for me are those. Go have an interesting conversation about something totally unrelated with a new person. Get some get some new into your brain. Some different, truly different. Um, because all of that then feeds back into you as a leader. Um, if you want to get good at business, don't read about business, read about everything else. Mm. And it all feed together is basically my attitude. Mm. Sounds very refreshing. Yeah. Don't suck at looking after yourself like I do. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's the best advice. Thank you, Chris. I feel like you really know authenticity when you see it and I can really feel it here with Chris. There's something about him being open with his flaws, but meanwhile he claims enough power without being power hungry, which makes him this kind of magical balance. Kind of hard to put into words, but more philosophical leaders like Chris, please. Well, you've been listening to the Conscious Leaders podcast and I'm Ruth Franger. I want to facilitate honest conversations with great people leaders so you can learn from their highs and lows and take away sustainable practices and behaviors you can implement straight away. For free practical advice on how to build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, as well as info on my number one best-selling book, Next Level Leadership, visit consciousleaders.org.uk.